Uh, let's just pray. Lord Jesus, as I share this word this morning, Lord God, I just really, that, that word that came this morning with the scripture, Lord Jesus, about the sweetness of your word in our mouths, Lord. And Lord God, your word is like honey to our lips. And we want to be a people, Lord God, that, that love your word, that love your scripture, Lord Jesus. It's your word to us. It's through it we are encouraged, we're comforted, uh, we're in awe. It's through your word, Lord God, that we really see your glory. And that's what we want to do. See your glory and be more in love with you every single day. As we receive your word. Amen. All right, so last week I introduced the aspect. We went into a new section, which is Revelation 4, and which actually reveals something that actually Paul was not even allowed to reveal. Well, they say it was Paul. If you read your scripture, it says that 14 years ago, I don't know if the man was in the spirit or how he was caught up into the third heaven and was, was shown things that he was not permitted to see. That's an amazing thing, that God would show somebody something of his glory in heaven and then say to them, you're not allowed to tell anybody. Imagine living with that secret. That would be pretty tough. But then, then in this section over here, when God is speaking to John, he shows him something of the spiritual that he wants him to reveal, that he wants to reveal. And we need to know why he reveals that and how it can actually impact our lives. So last week, let's go into the... So last week we spoke about, um, introduced us to our Father who is in heaven and gave us a picture which previously no one had been given permission to reveal. And two things came out from last week. Firstly, the throne on which God speaks is, speaks about his authority. Um, from that we understand that God and his glory must always be the center of every prophecy. A lot of times prophecy and the prophetic can make it about the person bringing the prophecy or even the prophecy itself or the things that the prophecy speaks about. But we saw from last week that the center of all things when it comes to pro uh, the prophecy and vision has to be God. And that's what we see when we first, we first encounter, encounter this vision as his throne. Secondly, we, we are confronted with color. And we, we, they, uh, the, the way in which John describes the Father, and again, he didn't use the words God. It was just amazing to him. He used him, he was like carnelian and jasper. And those are the colors of fire. And, 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 and I, would, I would imagine that probably it was translucent. It was full of color and full of light. And that's because God is actually indescribable in his beauty and his majesty. There's nothing that we can use to actually physically describe him. So what John was seeing was somewhat of a picture, a glimpse of his glory, uh, just like uh, other people when, when God passed by and closed, they said, my eyes have seen the glory of God. I'm, a, I'm afraid because I will die. You know, They hid themselves from God. So God is, God, and, and, and there's a reason for it. God doesn't display himself as exactly in one specific form. And that's why we have this whole understanding, we learned last week, that we don't create images of God who's in heaven. The Bible forbids it. Because actually, an image cannot fully actually display who he really is. All right? 
So the whole purpose of the vision, the whole purpose of vision is to inspire awe in those who behold him. That's its purpose, to inspire this awe of, of God, that he's amazing, he's an amazing God. So attractive is his person and his presence that one cannot help but fall before him. And that is one thing, if you, if you want a real picture of heaven, and I know many people have had pictures and have died and gone to heaven and that, but a real picture of heaven that shows us God will immediately bring us into the place of worship. And as we'll see that as we go on, we're just filled with awe of who he is. You would be confronted by him and say, wow, this is God? Amazing. And that's what it's what, what is inspired to do. All right, the whole purpose of the vision is to inspire that. You may ask today why we are going through this scripture so slowly. You know, why can't we just get through it and get to some of the stuff that's going to impact us physically in the future? And there's a reason for that. We need to observe, even use a little of our imagination to inspire us to this awe. And I, I don't know if any of you have done this, but a while ago, I acquired myself one of these 3D goggles, you know, that you put your phone in, and then you can see things in three dimensions. Quite an amazing thing. One of the first things that it shows you, well, one of the first things that I wanted to see was wanted to see what an astronaut sees when he goes on a space work at you know, when they go up there on their, um, on their journeys into space and then they look down on Earth. And it is amazing. You, you are filled. It's like as if you were there. It's an amazing experience. I put it on and I'm like, what? And this is on a phone. And you look and it's like just it inspires you with awe. Now that's what heaven is supposed to do. You see, all of these things that we have, when you go and you see, I mean, I love science fiction movies. For one reason, they inspire awe. They inspire awe in me because it's God's creation. And as we look at God's creation, it, it, should, it should inspire something within us to say, wow, that is amazing. Every time you experience a wow moment, the wow moment is there to give us an indication of how big God is and His glory. And that's what, when we go through Scripture, we can read it, and particularly the book of Revelation, and we can skip past things. I'm not skipping past things, because I want to leave you with a sense of, wow, that is amazing. I didn't see that, if you just read it. So that's, what, that's why I'm going through it, step by step. So, the first thing that we now see is around the throne of God were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns upon their head. Wow! First thing we do is we behold God the Father and it's an amazing thing. Then we look and we see 24 thrones around them with elders sitting on the throne. All right, on those thrones. Now, the 24 elders represent Israel and the church, you know. So we'll speak about the 12 apostles of the Lamb, all right, and the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament. So that is the indication of the 24 elders. That's why there's 24. Now, obviously, they also represent the saints because we're also going to be sitting on thrones, with them, all right? But what we are shown is we've shown a picture of these 24 elders. And so why is that picture given? 
What is the so I'm going to make some comments about this, and hopefully it would uh, inspire you to think. All right, because that's what we want to do. Isn't it interesting that elders, not pastors, prophets, apostles, evangelists, teachers, are sitting on those thrones? It's elders. If there's anything that should show us the importance of elders in a church, this should be it. This should be it. We see no other gift in the actual book of Revelation except the elders. Now, elders are not a gift. Elders relates to authority. So, it is amazing how we have elevated everything except the elder in church. And yet... The only position we see in heaven is elders. So, when we pray your will on earth as it is in heaven, and Paul appoints elders in churches, it should not be difficult to understand that leadership without elders is not biblical leadership. I hope you see that. I mean, we've taught a lot on elders, hopefully, if you've been here over time. But guess what? In the book of Revelation, it speaks about elders. Now that should sort of inspire us to think, okay, well maybe there's something to the appointing of elders that Paul does in the church. And then it speaks about elders and deacons. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe we just gloss over it and use other terms instead of using the terms that are biblical. We see that in the book, we see that in the book of Revelation. Isn't that amazing? Okay. All right. Two problems exist in the church today. Churches that don't have elders and elders in church who do not understand the significance of their role. Those are the two problems we have today, I believe. You have people, churches that are averse to elders because they see elders as, as people that control or whatever and prevent people from doing what they need to do. So they say, or actually elders who hire and fire the pastor, which is an anomaly, because a pastor is an elder, because an elder is called to shepherd the sheep. All right? So you get this where there's this tension. There should be no tension. We shouldn't even think about it. It should do it as the Bible says. It's very simple. But then there's the other extreme, and I know churches, where elders see their role as deciding who does this and who does that in terms of the pastor, what pastor are we going to get, what, and administrating by simply looking after money and stuff that's happening within the church. It's just a management position of things. People, those elders have failed to see. And there are many elders that should never be an elder. Many. They're sitting in a position because they have a, a, a financial background of some sort or they have some sort of thing, but they have not taken the understanding of what an eldership position is a very important role. We see it here in the book of Revelation, and we should, we should honor that in our hearts and in our minds and in our prayers. Okay, So we see that. So that, I give, that gives you a picture just to maybe reinforce some of the stuff and the reason why we do what we do when it comes to elders. Thirdly, we see a throne is where there's a representation of authority. And that's what we saw last week. These thrones represent authority among people. And while all people are equal in the sight of God, this does not mean that everyone has the same authority. Okay? That doesn't mean that. And here we see this. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or my left, this is the sons of Zebedee, the mother asking, just... 
Get, put them with you, one on your left, one on your right. Be close to you, Jesus, in terms of authority. And he said, these places belong to those for whom have been prepared by my Father. In other words, Jesus himself even didn't decide who goes where in terms of authority. And we need to understand there's still authority in the kingdom to come. It's not like all of a sudden we get to a place where actually there's no authority. There will always be authority. And there will always be designated authority. Firstly, there will always be an authority structure, even the kingdom come. This is a very important thing to note because we are living in a world with a mindset that believes that a difference in authority means a difference in equality. Now, there's a reason for that, and I understand that, because some people that have been in authority use their authority to actually serve themselves and their position. And that's what Jesus speaks about when he says, among the Gentiles, you see them, they lord it over one another, and they're stepping up, and he says, not among you, you must become a servant. All right. So, so, so the, the whole objective of authority and leadership is to serve the people it's leading, not there to serve itself. And because of the fact that people have used positions to serve themselves, that we're living in a world that says, uh-uh, I don't want that. You put somebody in authority, they're not equal to me. Because people that have been in authority have made themselves above people. But just because that has happened, we mustn't react by saying, well, if there's any authority, then all of a sudden now that person's I'm less equal to that person. If you're, under my, if you're under anybody's authority, it doesn't matter who it is. I'm under the authority of the government of this country and the people that are in that place. When a police officer pulls me over, I'm under his authority in that circumstance. But I am absolutely equal with him. And it is that equality that needs to be brought forth. And sometimes we have to bring it forth because sometimes people that are in authority think to themselves, well, I'm above the person that I'm in authority over. There's a very, very crucial things that you need to understand. But anyway, just, just showing you that authority and an inequality of authority does not mean an inequality of person. All right? We are all equal in the sight of God. All. But we have different authority. And there will be that in the future. All right? And secondly, we must understand that God decides who is given authority, not us. And this is a very important thing because a lot of times, you know, there is an attraction to authority. We're attracted to authority. We want authority to really, we want to be in a position of authority because so often it gives us power over people. We don't want to be under authority because we feel like somebody's got power over us. And lots of people are wanting to have authority, but they don't want to be under authority. But actually, if you're able to be under authority, it'll give you authority. Just remember that. But at the, even in that position, even if you're a person that responds well to authority, does not necessarily mean that God's going to give you authority. All right? Authority is something that is designated by God, and it would serve us well if we don't try to grab a hold of it. All right? But if it's given to us, then I want to say to you, make every effort to be the best that you can at exercising that authority under God. Because it's very important. It's a very important aspect. Authority. I want to tell you, authority is one of, the, after being saved, is one of the next things that's most important to the believer. Is the whole issue of understanding of authority. If you don't understand authority, find out and say, help me to understand authority because I need to understand it. It's, it's a vital aspect of a person's life, I believe.
All right. And we should not fret because God will give you what he's decided to give you. And you can't grasp at something that God hasn't given you. And a lot of people today want something that God hasn't given them. It's okay. You should just say, you know what? If it doesn't come our way, it doesn't matter. If you've got Jesus, you've got everything. You don't need it. You know that. You don't need anything if you have Jesus. I was walking through praying in the forest the one time. And I was just praying about things that I needed. You know, things that I was saying, Lord this and Lord that and Lord that. And and God just revealed, the Holy Spirit just revealed me and said, if you've got Jesus, you don't need anything more. You know that. If you're satisfied in Jesus, you don't need anything else. If you have a relationship, a living, loving relationship with Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, you don't need anything else. That's what it means when he says, come to me, all you weak and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. He says, my burden is light. The yoke is easy. The same time he says, pick up my cross and follow me. What does that mean? just means that when we're in Jesus, when we are focused and close to Jesus, it doesn't matter how many trials and difficulties we go through in life, we will be fully satisfied. That's what Jesus said to the woman. He said, if you knew who was asking to water, you would have asked him for water, the living water. When we have Jesus, we have the living water. We don't need anything else. It's so important to be in that place. And maybe some of you are not in that place. Maybe you're in that place where actually Jesus is not your source. Or he was, but that well has dried up. Or that river has become, very, has become like a stream and is now maybe a trickle. Because you're not, he's not filling up your life. And I want to encourage you today when we worship, fill up your life with Jesus. Just get close to him, man. He can satisfy everything. It's when we're not with him that it becomes difficult. All right, some comments, some more comments. So these elders represent the saints of Christ who will be sitting also on thrones, as we saw a couple of weeks ago when we were speaking of one of the promises to the churches, will be sitting on thrones with Jesus. We will all be under authority, but we'll also have authority. Now, what does it mean to be dressed in white and have gold crowns? Well, dressed in white, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Sardis, we saw that The white represents the deeds of the saints. What does the gold crown represent? The gold crown represents your faith. All right? 1 Peter 1.7, These have come, speaking about trials, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So our faith is our crown, and our deeds are our dress. Okay, those two things, very important, very important. Most people err on one of the two sides, faith or deeds, but they are equally important. These two things are not opposed to one another. The Bible says that faith without works or deeds is dead faith. People who say that they've got faith, but they've not got the deeds to follow, that faith is dead. But it says the second thing as well. The Bible says that works without faith are dead works. So it doesn't matter how hard you work. If you haven't got faith, your work is dead. So those two things work together. And that's what the representation of the crown and the clothes. So when we see them, that's what we want. 
We want to see you, your crown of greater worth, your glory of greater worth than gold though perishes. That's what the gold crown represents is your faith. We want to see people, your faith increase and your deeds increase with it. Those two things going together. They must go together. We've got theology that tries to pull them apart, but they're not opposed. We need the crown because we're going to cast it before the Lord. But we also need the, the garments of our works, the things that we did while we were here on earth, our deeds. All right. Then comes this most awesome part, which I absolutely love. All right. From the throne comes flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Mm. Now, if you were reading through your Bible and you were reading through the book of Revelation, you would read the sentence and move through it like that. Why? Because we've all seen thunder, we've all seen lightning. Oh, that's the throne room. Okay, there's thunder and lightning. What does it mean? Does it matter what it means? It's thunder and lightning. We should not just gloss over things like that. You know, everything that God's word has, God has put in his word has its place. It is precise because God, it is important. God does not put anything in his word. He does not communicate anything that is not precisely what he wants to communicate. You know, we communicate often arbitrarily. But when God puts something in his word, it's never arbitrary. It's there because he's purposed it to be there. That's the God that we serve. It's purposeful. He doesn't just say, okay, well, let's show them the thunder and the lightning and then just move on. It must represent something. So what does it represent? Lightning and thunder represent God's power. God's power. 5,000 trillion watts, 500 trillion watts of power in one bolt of lightning. One bolt. It's immense power. Just like that. Every time you see it. 500 trillion watts, just... I mean, have you ever seen thunder and lightning? I never get tired of it, seeing that. We get thunder, we do get thunder and lightning here, but in South Africa... During the summer, it is often, there's often this lightning, great displays of lightning, great displays of thunder. And you just want to be inside and be looking at it from inside, not from outside. It's actually interesting. Now, this is interesting. It's very interesting that, that, that this displays God's power. All right. Now, here, here's a little interesting thing. It's like a little... A little story to the side of the story. But in Mongolia, one of the things, and I'm not too sure if it's something in Mongolia at the moment, again, but at the time of Genghis Khan, they always used to think when there was thunder and lightning, because the, the Mongolian plains are very open. And so this story must have emerged because people must have been struck by lightning in, in that. Whenever there was thunder and lightning, 
people, those people will be afraid and they would say that their God is angry. And so they would hide in caves. Okay, true. This is true. Okay. Now Genghis Khan, from his upbringing, had a very difficult upbringing. And had to actually weather the elements of thunder and lightning because he was being persecuted. Which in actual fact, when he went into one of his final battles... And I checked out the historical record. This is the truth. When he went into that battle, he, there was thunder and lightning, and he was able to walk without fear or ride on his horse without fear. And because of it, people revered him. And Genghis Khan became the person he, he was that people remember him now to be. So it's amazing how thunder and lightning display the awesomeness of God, even though people might not recognize it as our God, the true God, but there is this aspect of that power. I love it. Because God has intended it for that pur purpose. God's power is a big deal. We see this throughout the book of Revelation. I mean, if, you, if there's anything that we see in, in the book of Revelation that we come away afterwards thinking about, it's about God's power. He's great and his awesome power. It is a big deal. So we must remember that when thinking about and going through the book of Revelation and when we see this. So surrounding God's throne is this thunder and lightning, the power of God. It's a big deal. Look at what David says. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty water. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. So what David does here is he observes particular elements in God, of God's creation. But he doesn't just observe them and say, wow, that's what God has created. As he observes the thunder, he immediately assigns the spiritual attribute to God of power, the power of the thunder. That's what he does immediately. He assigns it to God. It's not like, oh, wow, that's what God has created. Immediately he starts thinking about the power of God. And that's precisely what nature is supposed to do. It's supposed to remind us of an attribute of God, a spiritual attribute of God, which is far more important actually than the physical that we're actually seeing. Interesting. Interesting. That's how it's supposed to be. That's, the, that's, how, that's how we're supposed to take nature. When, when, when we look at nature, that's what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to assign spiritual attribute of God to that. In other words, this displays God's immense power. And that, this, where it says this, where it says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty Lord. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. I don't think that David was just writing down that and coming up with that. David was looking. He was experiencing a thunderstorm with lightning and the immense power of it. And then what does he do? Then he writes about it. He writes about his experience of actually what that is supposed to demonstrate. And that's what God's intention is. Displaying this wonderful, this characteristic of his power. Look at the scripture. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. 
Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Again, this is what, what David is writing. Here again, we see how David interprets nature as being a reflection of God's attributes. So when we see something that we can relate to that is physical in what God has created, it is a representation of a spiritual attribute of God. It's not just intended to say, well, this is an amazing thing. Wow, fantastic, great. It's actually there to remind us that behind it is a person, God the Father. And that's what he sees. He sees everything he sees in nature. He assigns these attributes. Oh, this is God. This is God. This is what God is like. And so he sees, he sees like like Jesus did. Jesus assigned that. Jesus said, Solomon in, in all his glory was not even clothed like the least little flower. Okay? So he looks at the flower and he says, Jesus looks at this flower and he says, how amazing is that? Why is the flower more amazing than Solomon's garments and his glory? Because you cannot get the color of life into a garment. You know that. That's why a flower is more beautiful in its color and its, what it, its display than anything you can replicate from it. It's because of the fact that it's living color. It's living color. It's life color. All right? And that's what God wants us to always see, is to see His glory. So what can we see from the, 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 the flower that Jesus observed the flower? What was He thinking? You know what He was thinking? How beautiful God is. How amazing he is. When you smell the scents and you say, that smells so good. God smells good. When we taste food, God tastes good. Doesn't the Bible say, oh, taste and see how good God is? So that's what it's supposed to do. Nature is actually supposed to show us the attributes of God. So when you marvel at the wonderful things that God has created, you actually, this is to, say, to bring you close to God. And that's exactly what it's supposed to be doing here. So it's so important to actually do this specific thing. It's very important. Let's go on. Romans 1.20 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made, so that man is without excuse. Basically, what, what Paul is saying here, but it's not Paul, basically it's the Spirit inspiring Paul, saying that everything that God has created, what we see in creation, We'll get back to the thunder and lightning now. But everything that we see in creation, all right, speaks of the glory of God. So that man is without excuse. Somebody comes and they say, well, God, I didn't see you anywhere. And they say, I was everywhere. You saw me in what I, was, what I created. You're, not with, you're without excuse. If you don't believe in God, you're without excuse. That's what the Bible says. You know what happens as our science knowledge increases? One of two things happens. And, and, and we, we are so privileged to be living in a most informed way 
in terms of everything that we see, touch, taste, and feel, more than in any other generation before us, we have access to the finely tuned aspect of creation. More than ever. Now, one of two things happens when we actually, when we actually study science. One of two things happen. Either God becomes immensely small to the point where we don't believe in the spiritual dimension anymore. And you might not remember, as I said, I'm, I enjoy science fiction from the point of view, I, I love to see, imagine this vast universe that God has created. But we also have another guy that came out by the name of Sagan who studied the cosmos. And there's lots of people that study the cosmos. And guess what happens to them? What happens to them is that actually that study of the cosmos makes God small. And they can't, they can't wrap their mind around a God that is bigger than the universe. Now that scripture goes on. A little bit later on. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Those who don't believe just can't imagine a God who is bigger than the vastness that they see and observe. Isn't that amazing? That's what happens. So science is going to lead you either one way or the other way. For those who, of us who believe, God becomes infinitely bigger as we study science. So now we know the extent of the universe. Guess what? God is really big. And I think that that's what John wanted to convey when... when, when well, not what John wanted to convey, what God wanted to convey when John enters into this place, the space of the throne room of God. He wanted to say, look how amazing God is. God is big. He's massive. But you know what is even more amazing? Is as we have studied science, we realize how vital the minute detail is to our existence. As we've had these amazing um, um, uh, instruments that can measure the smallest dimensions, we realize how incredible this creator God of ours actually is. Because you realize that it doesn't matter how big everything looks to make what is so, make what just this one human being work is immensely difficult. It's immensely difficult. One human being is immensely complex. Science tells us that. You are not going to easily replicate. doesn't matter how hard you try. You're not going to easily replicate a human being. With all our knowledge of everything, we're not going to be able to. And for the believer, this just like says, Wow! Our God is amazing! Our God is amazing. So God will do one of two things as we study science. I love science. True science. Not philosophy science, because there is philosophy science. The science that, that has a theory that it has put before us that it can't prove. That's philosophy. 
Science is a reality of what you can test and prove. And as we see it, as we observe, the more that you get to observe it and you believe, you realize how absolutely powerful and awesome this God that we serve is. Amazing. That's what happens. The more true science uncovers for the believer, the more we are in awe of the immense power of God in what he's created. Now, what is the purpose of God's power? The purpose of God's power says this, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. Think about it now. This verse is taken, speaking about Pharaoh. This is speaking about Pharaoh. And that's speaking about Pharaoh. So this is speaking about Pharaoh in the negative sense is that his resistance to change brought the demonstration of God's power. Now think about that. For 400 years, they hadn't seen God's power displayed. Oh, we haven't even seen God's power displayed like this. I think even other than in the person of Christ, I mean, nobody's seen that kind of demonstration. But they saw it. But there was a purpose behind it. When there is a miraculous intervention of God, even when he heals a person, the person is not the purpose of the miracle. Now God loves us and, and heals us, but the purpose is not us. The purpose is him. We have to get that into our minds. That's what the Bible says. That's what the scripture says. God's miraculous power and intervention is there so his glory can be demonstrated. That's what it's there for. And we would do well to take that up. We'd do well to take that up. The purpose of his power being demonstrated so that the, his name may be proclaimed and revered in all the earth. Now you know what? David never saw Typical, miraculous intervention of God. And when I say typical, he would have ascribed many things that were miraculous in sort of happening stances as attributed to God. But yet he would recount the mighty works that God had done in the past. In fact, when they martyred Stephen, what did he do? He started to recount God's miraculous intervention in history. That's what he did. Why? Because miracles and the display of God's power are for his glory and his glory alone. Not for ours. Now, if we actually get healed or get are there to experience some of his power, that's phenomenal. But guess what it's for? It's for his glory, isn't it? Isn't it? It's for his glory. And we must take that. We must take that for his glory. For his glory. We've become overly sentimental about God's miraculous power, making people the object of his power instead of him. We have done that. You, and you must remember that. Just remember that. Because you, there is... This elevation of people 
and self. You know, if I lay hands on you and you're healed, then it makes me something. You know what I mean? And so many people are desperate for the power of God to intervene in people's lives because it elevates them. But actually, it's not there to elevate any person. We have to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even if God doesn't deliver us from the fire, even if God does not heal me, even if this situation doesn't get sorted out, even if I have to go into this place, know this, we will not bow and worship any other God. God is the focus of our attention. God is the focus of His glory. And that is what we need to be confronted with when we think about God's power. It's not about us. It's about Him. And you know something? When we make things about Him, it elevates us. Do you know that? When we make things about us... <laughs> You can't elevate yourself very highly, easily. You know, if you, if, I mean, all of us know people, they want to be with people of power because it elevates us. Well, guess what? Elevate the Father and you will be the most powerful person on earth. Every believer has that. Those throne room places which are reserved for you are for us. To be elevated with God. But we have to elevate God. Not us. Not person. We will be elevated. Don't worry about your elevation. Your elevation will change when you elevate God. It's an amazing thing. It doesn't matter what happens around about you. No, no circumstance. No situation. When we, eleva elevate, when we elevate God the Father. When we see Him for who He is. When we come into the throne room and we see His glory. And we see His majesty. And we see His power. When we see His protocol. We are filled with awe. That's what Revelation is supposed to do. If there's anything it's supposed to do, it's supposed to be that. If you come away and somebody's speaking about Revelation and you're not left in awe of God. And I say you need to change the person you're listening to. Because God should be elevated. I'm going to get us. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to say one more thing. As you can see, this wonderful picture of the lightning is over Toronto. We've got an equip coming up in November where we're going to gather in Toronto. Although they'll say Pickering because it's just outside Toronto. We, we think it's the whole thing, you know. And I just feel the sense of God is going to want to demonstrate His power. Not for us, but for Him. Just have that sense that that's what He's doing. We've got Tyron coming at the beginning of that month. He's going to be with us. So just check out that Saturday. I think it's the first Saturday in November. Keep it open. Because we feel God wants to do something. He always wants to do something. So it's not like special. We're not special in the sense. He's always do, wanting to do something. But we want to flow with what God is doing.
Praise you, Lord. Just really feel like just that word about a trickle. Or maybe even a dry stream. Maybe you haven't got a relationship with Jesus. Every journey with a relationship begins at a, at a certain point. And I want to challenge you today, if you've never taken the step to say, Jesus, I want a relationship with you, that you would do that today. You just say, Lord Jesus, I want to begin. It's a, remember, it's a journey. It's not just a decision that's a one-off. This is a journey of becoming more familiar with Jesus, growing in a knowledge of Him. So I really, I just encourage you, and it begins by saying with a commitment, Lord, I actually, I want a journey with you, Jesus. That's all it requires. It requires us to make a step of faith saying, I want a journey with you, Jesus. And if you do that and you're sincere, God will take you at his word and he will journey with you. But some of you here, maybe the stream has run dry. Or it's only a trickle. You actually have not been close to Jesus for some time. And that doesn't mean that you haven't gone to church and that it's just that your relationship with Jesus has not been very, very strong. It's it's been, you know, when we take one another for granted and we just like speak to one another in passing. We, we don't spend any quality time with one another. That's where I feel some of you are at. And, 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 you, and you can feel it because that river is dry. You feel it in your spirit. You feel it inside you. You feel like, I'm not really connected to, the, to the, 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 the life of Jesus anymore. Or it really is just this trickle. Well, for you today, you've also got to make a commitment. You've got to say, God, forgive me. I, I, I'm sorry I've walked away from you. And I actually, today, I make a change. I, I'm going to actually uh, get back to you so that that little trickle or the dry stream becomes a raging river in my life again. You just have to do that. Just say, hey, Jesus, I've got to do that. Just begins, you begin it by saying, God, I want to do this. Just do that. Just do that. And then I just encourage you, if you've done that, you know, we're never meant to journey our journey alone. At the end of the day, Jesus is coming back for a bride. He's not coming back for an individual. And so we're a part of a bride. We, this thing is a together thing. So if you've made any of those commitments and you say, you know, I've made this commitment and I want to make this commitment real, then I want to encourage you. Don't worry about the kids. It's cool if they're running. That's part of life. But if you've made that journey, if you've made that decision, then I encourage you to speak to myself or to Scott or to Prince and just say, you know, I've made that decision again and I want you to help me on this journey because we need help. The Bible says that we should uh, inspire one another onto love and good works. And, and it also says that God has placed leaders among you that, that actually are there to help you to achieve that objective of getting close to Jesus and walking with Him. So I really do, I encourage you. You don't have to, but I do encourage it. That if you have made a decision in any way, 
that you would speak to me or speak to Scott or speak to Prince, just to say, you know, I made that journey. Help me with this journey. And we will be so happy to help you with that journey. Bless you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. Lord, I just want to bless every person here, Lord God. I want to bless our children, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, that we've got children growing up in the house of God. And we know, Lord God, that we know that the church, you, you have de designated children as a part of old people and young people alike. It's not like we have, we focused on, your, on, the, on children or the youth or some age group. We focused on everybody, Lord. But we just love, Lord God, that when our children grow up in your house, Lord God, that they will take on your word and your name into the future. And we pray for them, Lord. We thank you for them. Lord, may they be blessed in everything that they do when they come into this house. May, may, you, may, your, may your word and your way reign upon them, Lord Jesus. May they grow up to be leaders in your kingdom. That, Lord Jesus, they won't just take the, the, a passive road in the kingdom, but that they would take a road where they actually uh, become leaders of your community into the future. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, we would raise up leaders, Lord, not, not only people that would just be attenders, but people that would be leaders, Lord, in, in faith, Lord Jesus, in your community, but also outside there in the world. That they would take a different understanding. We read about the authority in the elders. But Lord God, you've placed authority in every person here that is a believer. And that authority is in your house, but it is not only in your house. That authority is also in the workplace, Lord God. You want to take what you've given us, Lord, into the workplace. We know that leadership, Lord, in the workplace is as important as here. Christian leadership, Lord. And we know it operates totally differently to that which operates in the world. And I pray for people here, Lord God, that are in their field of whatever they are, in their work, Lord, that you would give them the tools and the equipment, Lord Jesus, to show a different way of leadership among, Lord God, those who don't know you, Lord Jesus. I just pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. I pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.